This is the Spark Podcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. Simon Barry started his career in the movie business as a camera operator before moving to LA to make it as a screenwriter. Things were going well. He was working steadily. He had a few writing credits under his belt. And then Simon got a call about a new Vancouver shot time travel show. And the combination of concept and the opportunity to work in his hometown led him to return to Vancouver full time. That little show was the barrier breaking continuum. And since then, Simon has been at the helm of a number of cult favorite series, including Van Helsing, Ghost Wars, and his latest, Warrior Nun which is now streaming on Netflix. I had a chance to speak with Simon about the early days of his career, his passion for genre storytelling, and how he became involved with Warrior Nun. Um, so Simon, I, I was curious about um, your life as a storyteller. Did you always want to tell stories? Because you've been in the industry for a very, very long time. Well, not that long. Uh, no, not. Make me sound like I'm an old man. No, uh, no. Well, no, I've always been, a, you know, I started writing, but not in a traditional sense of writing. I was making short films as a kid with my friends um, with a Super 8 camera. And I didn't really think of it as writing at the time, but I guess that was my beginning uh, of uh, my writing career because I was much more interested in, in filming and shooting and uh, and telling visual stories. Uh, but of course, a story uh, had to be a part of that. So I ended up um, writing in a way for those ideas that were really driven by the uh, desire to shoot something. And then um, as that evolved into film school um, and more kind of complex uh, short films, I did kind of realize, oh, I sort of been informally writing this whole time. I just never put pen to paper in the traditional sense of writing a screenplay. So I started writing uh, when I uh, got to university, taking play uh, playwriting classes and um, film classes. And that was sort of the beginning of the typing part of my writing career, I guess you could say, because up to that point, I had been doing everything really with a design to just uh, figure out something to shoot. And I'm curious, um, because it seems to me th from the, your body of work so far that you have a real passion and the fact that you have a production company that sort of specializes in genre uh, creation and genre universes. What is it about, you know, sci-fi and horror and fantasy that kind of piques your interest? And how was there something along the line when you were a kid that you saw and you said, OK, that's what I want to do? Yeah, I was very influenced, I think, by science fiction and um, and horror. Well, I think I, the, the visceral reaction I had as a kid to movies like Star Wars and The Thing and Alien, um, I think I just really, uh, it really affected me in, in a really, you know, in a really visceral way. And so when it came to filmmaking, my inspirations were, you know, Lucas and Spielberg and Carpenter and Ridley Scott and Francis Coppola and the um, and the idea of uh, films being about transforming or transporting you, I should say, to a different place, a different universe was really, 
I think, um, something that resonated for me. So when I started thinking about storytelling, I always, I think, was coming from a place where I was trying to do high concept, big worlds and big ideas. I wasn't really going for sort of those intimate um, character stories at first. Obviously, character becomes the backbone of all, everything. But at the beginning, I was really just, I think, inspired by um, strange places and strange situations and uh, and the the experience of my own cinema experience, which is really, you know, getting involved in the in the viewing of a movie and, and loving it and, and to the point where I actually started working as a, an usher in a cinema. So, you know, you have this passion for cinema, you go to film school, you make some more short films, and then you go out into the real world to actually work in the industry. So um, I'm curious because looking at your early, early credits, most of those credits are as a writer, uh, and then you move into a bit of directing as well. And you started in film, but now you're in TV. So there's a couple of questions kind of in here. The first is, you know, what was that um, sort of that the, the thing that kind of opened the door for you to get into the industry to begin with? And what's that transition been like moving from film to television? Well, I started when I came, when I was in my last two years of film school in Vancouver at University of British Columbia, I started working as a technician, as an assistant cameraman um, on uh, a lot of shows that were shooting in Vancouver. So I, I had a very early uh, understanding and, and appreciation for production when I uh, out of film school. And I sort of uh, stopped writing for a little bit um, once school was finished and really focused on uh, trying to focus on directing as I was working with, you know, directors, professional and top level directors like Ridley Scott, Peter Hyams, um, and others. Uh, and I really was on a track, I think, towards trying to push my career via directing as opposed to writing. Um, but I learned after I, so I worked as an assistant cameraman for about seven years and then I made the decision to move to LA. And um, I learned when I got to LA that the uh, I, the talent alone, like being able to direct something wasn't enough to generate momentum for your career, that you needed a project that was script-based to sort of create opportunity for others to sort of see uh, the, uh, the chance to work with you. So no one was gonna hire me as a director, it seemed just with no um, project that I was really pushing. So that really got me into writing in a real big way. So I started writing feature scripts when I first moved to LA and then, um, and writing a feature script at the time, a spec was, I think a little bit easier to break in than in television because television was geared much more around the writing room and a staff position and having just arrived in LA and not really knowing anyone uh, I didn't really have that network of people that could get me into a writing room. And so um, it was, it just made more sense for me to write uh, features. So I wrote a spec uh, feature script that got me an agent and then I sold that. And that um, script uh, got me meetings all over town um, in LA. It got me into all these producers offices and studios where I quickly converted sort of my uh, sample into hires into work opportunities. So I started writing um, uh, at Warner Brothers on a movie called Deep Blue Sea. Uh, that was my first kind of paid gig. 
And then I moved on to another movie called The Art of War, which was a Wesley Snipes film. And so movies just started, that's because I really only started in features because that's where my first uh, luck happened. You know, my first opportunity was in features. And so um, that kind of carried me along for a few years. And then out of the blue, really, uh, I had been approached, I'd been doing some book adaptations and uh, I had been approached by USA Network um, to do a, an adaptation of a Harlan Coben book. And uh, it was going to be a limited series. So it was a little different for me going from movies to television, but it was a good transition because I went from, you know, telling a two hour story to essentially a six hour limited. And that opened the door to a new group of people that I hadn't met who were basically TV based. And from then I started getting more and more work in the TV uh, world through writing pilots and things like that. But I actually spent about a decade writing television and not being produced out of having come out of features with several movies made. Um, and Continuum was the first show I wrote uh, after writing, I think, 12 or 13 unproduced pilots. Uh, Continuum was the first TV that actually got to production for me. But it was a big 10-year gap between my movie career and my uh, TV production career of just writing and writing and writing uh, with nothing happening. Well, and you know, that's so fascinating. The fact that you kept at it for 10 years with nothing happening. That's it's so disheartening. <laughs> well, I was getting, it wasn't exactly nothing happening. You always think that the pilot you're writing is going to go and you get paid. And so it is a living, you're making a living, but you ultimately don't have a lot of control about which projects are going to get to camera. So every year, obviously, if you told me at the beginning of year one, that I would be waiting 10 years to get another project, uh, shot, I probably would have made different decisions. But you're constantly encouraged because I was constantly pitching ideas. I was constantly selling them and and making a living. And every year I thought that year was going to be the one where the pilot I was writing was going to be made. And it just turned out to take nine years longer than I had expected. Um, but finally, when Continuum got greenlit, um, that changed everything because um, getting into production as a showrunner meant that the uh, the next one after that and the following would be driven more by the production reality as opposed to development. So what fueled your jump from movies to television? Well, actually, Continuum drove the process for me. I was in LA writing, actually, at that point, I, I think I was writing two or three pilots for CBS. And uh, I was under the assumption, what, what had happened was, I had developed Continuum as an idea with the intention of pitching it in LA to take it out as a original, you know, idea, which is something I did every summer, essentially with a, a new idea. And I would go, you know, from place to place and pitch my original ideas. And usually I'd sell them. So I was, I was ready to take it out and pre preemptively CBS um, uh, put me on a show they had already bought but they didn't have a writer on it. So I got a basically a job without having to pitch anything and started working on that show. And then subsequent to that, I also got, uh, once I'd finished that script for CBS, they uh, partnered me with Jason Alexander um, to write another pilot. So I ended up writing two pilots uh, that fall. And so I never pitched Continuum. I just developed the, the idea and that the, I never got to take it out. While I was writing those two CBS shows, uh, I got a call from an old friend of mine when I was a camera assistant, uh, Patrick Williams, who was um, 
uh, we had worked and come up together as camera assistants and he was now working as a director in Canada on a lot of shows. And he had been given an opportunity to pitch uh, Shaw, which was one of the Canadian networks. And he didn't have any original ideas because he's not a writer. He was really more of a, a director for hire at that point. So he asked me as a friend, he said, hey, I've, I've got this opportunity to walk into the network and pitch an idea. Do you have anything that you know you want me to, to, to show? And I said, well, actually, I have this idea continuum and I never got a chance to pitch it in LA. And I'm so busy now writing these two other shows. If you want to pitch that, see what happens. And of course, so Patrick, um, he pitches Continuum and gets it uh, gets it uh, set up at Shaw Media. Um, so then that's my third script now that I have to write that that in that six month period. And of course, uh, the irony was the two CBS shows didn't go forward and Continuum did. And so once Continuum was into pre development, which was essentially the getting the writer room set up and um, getting more scripts. Um, I was in Vancouver um, full time. I'd always been going back and forth. I mean, Vancouver uh, Vancouver was my home base, but once I'd moved to LA, I didn't really have um, a permanent residency here, here for quite a while. But right around the time Continuum uh, went, started going forward, I was spending more time in Vancouver uh, because I'd met my wife who's, who was based here. So I had moved up, but I was not working here. I was working in LA and commuting back and forth. So when Continuum went forward, it was great because I could actually now stay in Vancouver and work. And I sort of flipped the model instead of being in LA and coming up to Vancouver every now and then it was the reverse. I was staying in Vancouver and going to LA every now and then. And that was sort of how uh, things stuck after Continuum. So you've managed to work almost exclusively in Vancouver since you came up here for Continuum, right? Yeah, I mean, up until Warrior Nun, which was shot in Spain, I had done the, the next three shows, um, or two shows, uh, Van Helsing and Ghost Wars were all here in Vancouver after Continuum. So I went literally from show to show. Continuum ran four seasons. The, fall, the next year I jumped on to Van Helsing and did a season of, of Van Helsing. And then Right after Van Helsing, I went on to Ghost Wars. Um, and while uh, those were happening, my other show, Bad Blood, was being produced in Toronto, in Montreal, and in uh, and in Ontario. So I wasn't able to be on set for that one. But it was, it was nice to have so much work and uh, be home in Canada. You know, it was great. One of the things that I really like and appreciate about all of your work is that most of your shows have these very strong, powerful female leads. And I'm, I'm curious if you find that more difficult to write for as a white man. Um, do you have to make specific conscious choices when you're, you know, building your stories or your writer's room to ensure that there is representation? Yeah, well, I think one of the, I, I will say this, that when it comes to having female leads um, being in the genre space I think you what happens is you don't define the show as much because of its um, because of the uh, the choice of, of male or female in the story usually when you're building a big universe uh, or or a high concept idea like continuum or Van Helsing or even warrior Nun, I Minorian mean, obviously was never going to be have any male um, leads, but the the in the case of Continuum and, and Van Helsing, 
I think because the immediacy of the scenario, like this is a high concept show about, you know, in Continuum's case, it's time traveling cop chasing terrorists who come back in time to change history. You have this very kind of robust plot setup that really, I think, defines a character in a way that is the purpose of that character, the situation he or she finds her in, and the stakes um, means that it it's more, I think, open to any, any kind of uh, sex. It's not about a male or a female character defining the show in that point. Uh, it's kind of nice because as a, as a male and not being, like you said, being a white male, I, I can essentially write the part for either because their their goals and their their uh, skill set and everything as it relates to the story is human. It's not about being a, ma- a male or female. It's it really is about a, a strong character um, intention and and experience and situation. Then when you make the choice to make it male or female then you can refine that into something that is a little bit more specific to, you know, that character's sex. So with, um, I'll give you the example. I mean, in con- with Continuum, when it was first pitched, it was, uh, it was written for a dude. Um, and then when Shaw got involved, they were like, hey, what do you think about this being a female character? And I was like, well, of course, it's the same character. It's the same character I've written in the sense that it's the same situation uh, they've left their home, their family. Uh, I had no problem with that. And in fact, with with uh, with the choice to make Kira uh, a woman, it actually was better, I think, for the show on many levels. And also the connection she had with her son and the situation she finds herself in with a, a male partner uh, in the police department. So I liked that. Um, I liked that selection but to me to be honest with you i think that because the show was kind of out there with a high concept that was driving so much of kira's um uh situation that uh it probably you know made it easier for me to interpret it as as a woman but i had i had i've always had a a, a writing rooms where there are 50 percent women from on every show so it's never really been an uh, something i felt like was Oh, I've got to do this to um, protect myself, or even to make up for my own deficiencies. For me, it just was like the right idea for all shows to have that balance because you've never you never want anything to be so singular. And and you certainly realize that it's not just about male opinions or female opinions in a writers' room. It's just opinions and experience and and the diversity of 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 um, of, of life. So whenever you're putting a writing room together to just to get good drama and get good, honest storytelling, you want a mix of people, a mix of sex, a mix of uh, sexuality. You want diversity. You want social um, spectrum. You want everything you can to sort of broaden what the show can be and wants to say. And that was in a sense, the same thing for Van Helsing. Van Helsing started with obviously a female. It was always a female Vanessa Van Helsing in from the graphic novel, but again, with a very kind of uh, specific high concept situation that she's waking up in a vampire apocalypse. We were, you know, we were mostly driving plot and survival and 
the, the politics with these other survivors was the primary um, circumstance. And then her being a mother was definitely a huge motivating factor for her to find her daughter, especially in season one. So these were things that I think, you know, in genre are, I think there's equal opportunity for characters in more so because to be honest with you, it doesn't matter. I think it's really great that it can be a female or a male character and the the big high concept story will support it one way or the other. It it's it. I'm glad it worked out the way it did because I think we both shows benefited from having a female lead in that role. Um, and certainly with Warrior Nun, I mean, it is it was from the ground up. Always going to be feminist and female centric. That was that was never in doubt. Well, I think it's fantastic to see that you're always sort of keeping your mind open for different angles that you can infuse into your work. Um, I'm curious about the writers' room. I can only imagine that working in Vancouver for uh, the last number of years and on a few different shows um, that you've, you know, become uh, familiar and know who to contact to build a writer's room here. But I understand that for Warrior Nun, um, you actually did your writer's room in L.A. And I'm curious if that was a decision that you made or if that was a recommendation from the studio and how that all sort of came together. Yeah, so Netflix had asked me, I think at the time Warrior Nun was going, Netflix had several other shows in Vancouver going and they they were aware that there was probably going to be a bit of a, a talent drain um, in the city at that point. So uh, they had basically from day one had suggested that the room be in LA and I had no problem with that. Um, I was looking forward to doing, to you know, expanding my uh, my network of, of writers and and try something a little different. And also because Netflix is based in LA, we would have sort of a, a bit of a uh, more easier um, uh, connection with the executives there because we were on the we we're in the Netflix complex um, to where the writing room was for season one. So what I what I did, even though I was a little apprehensive because I didn't have sort of the fallback safety of writers that I knew who were all here in Vancouver, I reached out to a friend of mine, Amy Burke, uh, and who I had met socially through the Vancouver Film Festival. And Amy is a, I'd never worked with Amy, but we were, we were uh, friends and we had been uh, staying in touch over the time. And uh, Amy is very well connected in LA. I would say she as well, she's a showrunner in her own right and has written on many shows and she's also known as a genre writer. And so I just reached out to Amy really to help me um, put together uh, a list and not with the intention of her being on it. Cause I just assumed she was too busy, but it, as it turned out, she was available, which was great. So we got Amy uh, in the room as, as kind of my number two writer. And then she really helped me put together a, a stratified uh, list of, you know, sort of experienced writers, mid-level writers and new writers, and really just opened up her Rolodex in a way. So between Amy and a couple of suggestions that came through Netflix, uh, it was very easy to sort of put together the room and uh, balance it between, um, you know, male, female and, uh, and experience levels. And um, and get a real cross section of of uh, personalities and diversity, so that we had uh, a lively and uh, I think really you know um, it was a fun group. I really enjoyed 
working in the room on Warrior Nun. And, and being in LA was a different thing for me just from a practical point of view, but I did find it exhilarating to have a whole new group of people that I hadn't worked with before. And, and it kept me on my toes as a showrunner, I think, in a good way and made me a better, made me a better showrunner. So uh, I really enjoyed it. I'm really curious about the adaptation process and how that works in the writer's room. Like you have these, so the source material, uh, these stories and these characters. Where do you even start to figure out what you're going to use, what's going to make it to the screen and what aspects you're going to leave behind? Well, not even one of them specifically. Um, the, the, the original books for Warrior, Warrior Nun were from the 1990s by Ben Dunn. And they were essentially a, um, they set up this, I guess you could say this universe where, you know, heaven and hell are at war and Warrior Nuns are sort of caught in the middle and they have a, um, a mandate as a secret kind of uh, organization to do battle. Um, but we weren't really trying to take the plot of um, the books. We really were kind of liberally borrowing the mythology without any of the stories. And in fact, the characters from the books um, are, we've sort of re reimagined them in the show. The lead in the books is, uh, is Shannon and Ariala. So there are those two characters in the books. We kind of took the names and reinvented them for our purposes. Um, so the adapting process really was dramatic, I guess you could say. The, the whole thing came to me in the form of a movie. At one point, I was approached by the producer of the movie to rewrite the movie. And I got the script and I started rewriting it. And I realized pretty quickly that there was too much uh, mythology to pack into one, you know, 90 minute or hundred minute movie. And I suggested we re-examine this as a TV series. And he thought that was a great idea. So that was the, the jumping off point for me to familiarize myself with the books. But even at the point of the feature script, the movie script had already departed in a big way from the, from the comic books. And so it was really, uh, I think once we started putting the room together and digging down, it was, I think, more just an inspired by scenario more than an adaptation. We really were sort of taking the tone and the spirit and sort of the attitude of the books, which had a real bit of a rock and roll kind of in your face attitude and spirit. And we wanted to, you know, apply that. And at the end of the day, it was really about the setup of the OCS, the Order of the Cruciform Sword, and some of the Warrior Nun, um, uh, some of the Warrior Nun names like Shotgun Mary, and uh, and uh, and really sort of taking inspiration and cherry picking things that we liked from the books without ever feeling like we were doing a, an adaptation because we really weren't. We were really sort of inspired by it and in the spirit of the books. The show is incredibly different. If you ever get a chance to look at the comic you won't recognize our show. <laughs> so I can curse you for the, that uh, season one cliffhanger. Well, actually, you can curse Netflix, to be honest. Uh, so in the original script, I wrote the final episode and directed it. And I actually had a resolution at the end of that episode that Netflix uh, came to us and said, hey, why don't you pull back the endpoint into the, you know, a little earlier and really leave the audience on a, uh, on a cliffhanger 
that is much more severe. And, you know, as a writer, you, you understand the, there are many layers of logic to that from Netflix's point of view, that, that they want the audience kind of on, on, on the edge of their seat and they want the anticipation of season two, which you, of course, want to go along with because everybody wants season two. Uh, but at the same time, you know, oh, this is really, you know, this is potentially going to piss people off. And it's really kind of a, a shocking way to end. Uh, but at the end of the day, Netflix is our sponsor and our, um, they're the ones who are spending all the money. And so you do want to make them, uh, you want to give them the benefit of the doubt in terms of how they make their shows and what works for their platform. They have the, the experience and the data to back up these kinds of decisions. Uh, and they do steer you towards success. That's their goal. So uh, we did go along with that. So I guess I'm to blame and Netflix is to blame. I guess we can share some of the blame. Of course, if we get season two, everyone will forget that. You know, it won't matter. Come on, Netflix. Let's get on that green light of season two right away. Yeah, I hope so. One of the other things that I find um, really interesting about all of the work that you do is just how visually striking it is. The production values on all of your shows look so great. And, you know, one of the things that I always hear about is uh, creators talking about how there's never really enough money to, you know, do everything that you want to do and make things look as good as you want to look. Um, and that's not just a Canadian problem, but it, you hear about it a lot uh, from Canadian producers. And I'm curious how, you know, you get around that because your shows look so much more expensive than I assume they are. Well, to answer your question, I mean, yeah, the first the first few shows I did were all based as Canadian productions, which meant they had a, um, a they were you know, usually not funded as well as American shows. And so you find creative ways to compete with other shows. And one of the ways you can compete is by prioritizing visuals. I'm, I'm coming from a camera background and, um, and being very appreciative of how a show looks is probably it makes me a little different than most writers who tend to come from, you know, the pages there inspiration i've always been into cinematography and directing and um production design and so i've always put a heavy um emphasis on look and visuals and style and visual style and um and design because that's just my thing i i really appreciate that and i really enjoy that part of the process so with continuum and with Van Helsing, you know, you can, you don't have to spend a lot of money to make a show look really good, but that's the truth. You, there are certain things that, that obviously give away big budgets like giant sets and some incredible locations. But a lot of times I just think that some shows and particularly some shows in Canada, because the budgets are so tight, there just isn't sometimes the, um, the avenue to prioritize visuals because you've sort of, once you've put the show together and everything's up and running, you kind of look at what you've got left and you're like, well, we, we're not going to be able to afford these great locations or we're not going to be able to build these crazy sets. I, I kind of came at Continuum and Van Helsing a little bit the other direction and said, no, we're going to, we're going to make sure we have money for that. And then we'll scramble for all the other stuff <laughs> that you normally have, um, you know, that you can count on. So we, um, we did that. I did that, you know, for several years. When when Warrior Nun came around, it was a Netflix original. They didn't care 
that we were Canadian or that the show was Canadian and they didn't. And obviously I didn't, I had no intention of shooting it in Canada. So Netflix didn't sort of put the same kinds of limits on the show that normally you would have if you're shooting a Canadian production. And that way it sort of freed me up to, um, uh, and the budget was a little bit bigger. So I could focus on things like shooting in Spain and building out a visual design for the show with the cinematographers and the production designer and visual effects that was the way that you know i I, i'm i'm used to using money as a guide for the creative because once you can look at a budget and you know where the money is you can write to the strengths of what you have in your in your wallet and i've done that on every show and and allowed the show never to show the cracks if you if you will You, you once you know what the money situation is you can write a show that won't look like it's suffering you know you can sort of write to the strengths that you have with uh, every show, you have that formula. So with Warrior Nun, having a location like Spain may, meant we didn't have to build as many sets because there are so many insanely beautiful uh, uh, buildings and places and churches and cathedrals and castles. So you could sort of reprioritize where money would be spent and put more of it into locations. And in Europe, locations aren't as expensive as they are in North America, especially Vancouver, where there's too much filming, which drives the prices up. So we were very lucky that the that we could sort of put a lot more of our energy into the visuals of the show and not have it cost as much as it might here or in you know North America. And that really made Warrior Nun, I think, distinctive in the way that it does look. And also, we had two amazingly talented uh, cinematographers, Chris Lavasser who was our, our our main cinematographer. He shot the first, third, and fifth block and set the look of the show. And then Emmanuel Nebea, who was our, one of our Spanish DPs, and, and he uh, shot the second and fourth block. And But Chris really set a look for the show that was, you know, what you see, that, that very kind of um, uh, operatic, romanticized, and very visually dramatic um, look is something that he and I discussed early on uh, before, you know, is, is right at the beginning of the production. And Jet Wilkinson, who came in to direct the first two episodes, we all collaborated, uh, but we had, an ama- we had an amazing system in Spain where the production services company had done Game of Thrones. And so in terms of getting locations and, uh, and the best people, in art department, in costumes. I mean, they had this incredible network of talent in Spain that was uh, the world world class and had done, you know, you name it, Terminator, you know, uh, Gladiator um, and Spider-Man and Game of Thrones. So we really had some of the best craftspeople on the planet in Spain at our disposal, which really, really adds that layer of, gloss and patina to the, the visuals because you can you can it's not just enough to have it well lit but what are you lighting if, if you don't have the props and the set deck and the and the the design and the architecture and the locations then you've got nothing and i understand that this time around um the embassy who did the visual effects for the the show came on board really really early uh, how did that all come about uh, so I've known Winston since uh, university. Um, and in fact, Winston and the producer of the movie 
of Warrior Nun, Dean English, are old friends as well. So there's a real, there's a, there's a Vancouver connection on all, all, all fronts of Warrior Nun between the original rights holder of the, of the material of the IP for the feature film that came to me and Winston and Stephen Hedges, who's my partner in RDF and was the executive producer on the show. And Zach Tucker, um, who was uh, the line producer uh, for us and also was on Continuum for four seasons and on Ghost Wars. So we're all Vancouverites. And so early on, I knew that we were going to bring as much of the post-production back to Vancouver because my post-supervisor, Todd Giroux, who I've done every show with and hopefully will do every show with is based here. And so we had early, early on in the process talked about the editors uh, in Vancouver that we wanted to work with and the visual effects company and embassy came up actually quite early because the um, uh, Winston and had uh, been talking to myself and Steve just about finding a way to work with us. And so uh, they had done a lot of features and a lot of commercials. They hadn't really done a full TV show. And that was something that they really wanted to get in the business of. So when Warrior Nun came around, we uh, we followed up and said to Winston, here's your opportunity. You can do, you can basically own the whole show in terms of his effects and help us from the ground up now in terms of designing creatures and uh, unique effects that are going to be, you know, original for the show. And so they were been incredibly enthusiastic and came on board uh, with full vigor and creativity and were amazing partners because they really were coming in almost like a concept art uh, level in terms of things like the Tarrasque and uh, some of the halo effects and things like that that we needed to establish and understand early before we started shooting so that we could apply those effects the right way. And then, you know, Winston himself came out to Spain for the first few episodes to supervise the onset and came back for the uh, last couple of episodes. And um, and uh, his team were just phenomenal, just incredible people, all very skilled um, and great artists and really great collaborators. So what are the benefits of um, or what do you see are the benefits of having um, the VFX company come on board? Uh, so early in the production process. Yeah, I mean, the earlier the earlier you can plan anything in terms of um, in terms of vis effects, uh, may, means that two things happen. Uh, one, the cost goes way down, uh, and number two, um, the effects are better because you are essentially planning ahead. You're you're shooting in a way that you don't have to fix as much in the post production um um pipeline and what uh what embassy did which was great was because they were involved also in some of the design like things like the tarasque which sometimes might have been farmed out to a, a you know a, a different company um they were able to really not just be executing this uh these kinds of effects but they had been they'd had a hand in actually designing them so they really knew what we were going to need on the day when we were shooting in locate on location in Spain, they were basically making sure that we shot things in a way that would make their work later be even better, you know, and that really is that the advantage of having a company in early who are uh, kind of in, in sort of in the DNA of the show early, not just for um, 
the final product, but even ahead of the shooting in terms of concepts. So now the show is out there and, you know, people are enjoying it and uh, you're promoting and we're hoping for season two and there's this pandemic. So uh, I'm curious to know how you uh, are dealing with um, the creative process during this bizarre time. Well, it wasn't anything. Yeah, writers have been on lockdown from the beginning of their careers, most of the ones I know, at least. So we, we were we were basically training for this our whole lives and didn't know it. <laughs> hey, that, isn't that the truth? Um, kind of related to that, I'm really curious about the writing process and what that looks like for you. You know, when you have a number of projects on the go or, or, or you're sort of in between projects like we are right now. Um, I, what is that process for, you know, like how, what projects do you work on on a day-to-day basis? Uh, th- how do you deal with like the start and stop between stories? Like how does that, what does that look like for you? Well, you're, it's it's so normal that you don't really think of it as being off and on. It's just constant. I mean, you, for, the, for most of the writers I know, you're never focused on one thing unless you're focused on it day-to-day because you're making it or you're in the writer's room. But when you're not in a writer's room or not in production or post-production, it's a it's basically picking up where you left off prior to that, which is usually four or five or six different things that are in different stages. So, I mean, there are movie projects I've been working on for years. There are TV ideas I'm developing from just a, a kernel. There are uh, scripts I've written uh, that I'm rewriting. There are uh, books I'm adapting. It just, it, it's a never ending process because you just don't know. I mean, one day Warrior Nun will, you know, hopefully um, after a long run, one day it'll, it'll will end and you want to be, you don't want to be starting from zero for the next show. You want to be, you want that show to be ready to go. And so that you can leave one and start the next one immediately. So it's a constant process of getting these things into shape into finding uh, networks to work with or studios to work with. Um, and and even as a producer now, finding other writers and working with them and getting their material out into the world. So it's a, it is never, it's never not that. I, I got to be honest with you. There's no time where I sit around going, what am I going to work on today? What, you know, what should I think come up with? It's, it's literally like, how can I find half an hour to work on one of the 12 things I'm working on? while I'm doing all the other things. And that's that's how a writer always feels like they're a full-time worker because if you're not doing that, um, you're probably doing something else. And that, whatever it is you're doing that something else is not writing. And so it's it's sort of normal, to, uh, to be honest with you. It's uh, even when you're having success, you're as, you're as busy working uh, on your own things or working for free or doing kind of, you know, coming up with ideas as you are when you're not. And that that is something that just seems to be the nature of the business. That's, uh, it's a, it's an ongoing thing. So it's very second nature for me. I mean, I'm so used to it now. And I, it's sometimes I just need, I need help keeping track of everything because there's too many things to on the go. <laughs> so how do you know, or when do you know that a project is, um, as developed as it can possibly be and that it's ready to be pitched? Um, I think you know when you don't have to look at it again anymore on paper, when you just know it in your heart and you are you can't wait to tell someone about it. You know, you just want people to hear the idea. 
it's usually those two things for me are the two things where I go, okay, I, sh- I need to be pitching this. It's, it's A, I don't have to look at it anymore because I know it so well. And I know I've already kind of gone through all the, all the possibilities of questions and answers. And uh, I've given it the test, my own internal test of, you know, which is, does it keep my attention? <laughs> you know, am I interested in it? Would I watch it? Uh, and is it about something I'm interested in saying? And then B, is it something I think other people want to see and watch? And, um, and the other, the final one is like, do I want to be married to it for up to five or six years? Because that's also the, the, in success, you end up being, you know, attached to these things in a very intimate way for a long time. So you want to make sure that the ideas that you do pitch are the ideas you want to be stuck working on for half a decade in some cases. Yeah. I mean, and you know, I mean, the odds of, I mean, I pitch, I think it's, it's, I'm constantly pitching and constantly not selling just so, you know, it's not like this is something that happens um, on a basis that where it's like, Oh, I'm just going to go out and pitch something and it's going to go. It's as uncertain as anything. And, um, and the marketplace is, is constantly shifting and changing. So you just don't know what's going to be the right thing to pitch other than what you want to do. And then you can't really second guess the marketplace because you'll always be chasing your tail. So I'm, I'm really curious that, you know, you've now, you, you've, you've been in Hollywood, you've written some films, um, you have a, 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 some shows under your belt, You're, you've been a showrunner, you've had writer's rooms. And, and I'm curious, if you were to meet young Simon, younger version of yourself, you know, when your career was about to start, what advice would you give yourself? Well, I would have told young me to start writing earlier. I, I started writing into my late 20s, really, which was a little late, I think, uh, for the advantages I think I would have liked to have had earlier. Um, and, you know, the more you write, the better you get. So the sooner you can get 10 or 20 scripts written, regardless of whether they're TV or film, the better your writing will be. It's just, it is one of those 10,000 hour things. You just get better and better and better every time you write and you learn so much every time you write a script. So I think one of the things is that I wish I had had more scripts under my belt. You know, when I first moved to LA, I didn't really have any. Uh, And I think I would have benefited from having more more uh failure in terms of you know trying trying more often and then what happened was i started learning the lessons i could have learned earlier i learned them later and so i think that was you know uh not necessary i could have easily have have, have, uh, made things a little easier for myself if i'd written more scripts early on but you know you learn that's the thing you learn the hard way um and then the other bit of advice i guess is to uh, is you got to kind of recognize that this is not a, it's, it's less of a job and more of a calling. Uh, if you wake up every day and you want to sit down and write, you're in a very good position to succeed because ultimately it's that thing that you love doing that is your is going to be your life. Your life is not, the majority of your uh, life is not going to be selling scripts and making them. It's going to be being in your office or wherever you like to write on your own in your head and coming up with ideas and characters and hearing voices. And, and that's really your life. 
it's like, it's great that we focus on the moments that are successful, which are great, but um, that's like a small percentage of my time. Uh, the big majority of it is me uh, communing with my laptop and putting words down and seeing and imagining things in my head. And that's kind of your existence. And if you can't really wrap your head around that, it's probably a terrible career choice. Like you, you, if you want to be, if you want all the action and, and uh, excitement of production, get into production, <laughs> like go work on a film set uh, or be an actor or, or focus on directing. Um, but for writing, it is really, it is kind of a, a Zen um, meditative thing that you sort of need to wrap your head around and realize that that's where the work gets done as much as anywhere. You're very involved with your fans. You're on social media, you're um, on Twitter and Instagram, and you, you interact with your fans a lot. You go to conventions. How important is that to you? Well, it, 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 is, it is a blessing and it is, uh, I feel very lucky that I get to share what I do with everyone because a lot, I spend a long time writing things that no one will, has ever seen and probably will ever see. So when you do get a chance to have an audience and have audi an audience reflect back on on the team that make it with their uh, you know their appreciation and their uh, their love, that is a great thing, and that's something you, you can't get on your own in a, in a in front of your computer in your office. So that that definitely keeps me going and keeps me excited about the next one and the next one and the next one. So. Um, Thank you for uh, for uh, well, I'm asking me the question that allows me to say that. And that was my conversation with Simon Barry, the showrunner for Warrior Nun, which is now streaming on Netflix. The Spark Podcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. For more about Spark CG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org. We'll be back with another episode of the podcast in two weeks' time.